0: And second, Timothy, last words, Timothy's uh, letter from Paul, Paul's last words to Timothy, and we've been talking the last few weeks about how to live faithfully in the last days. What does it look like for us to live and to be Christians and what the Bible describes as last days, and we say it every week, that, that all days for Christians are the last days. We don't distinguish whether or not we're actually living in the end times because the Bible says we don't know. And because we don't know, we should live as if we are always. We should be sober and awake, as Ephesians says. We should wake up to reality um, about the days that we're living in, and so we have really dug into this, and God's been really working. Today, we're going to have a lot of fun because we're just going to do literally one verse. Um, and so, this verse, Second Timothy in the first chapter, there you can turn there. Second Timothy one seven. If you've got a Bible in the pew or you've got your phone open there, Second Timothy one seven says this: For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear. But God gave us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. God says, these three things I have given you so that you can live faithfully. So what God's saying here uh, through Paul is all the things I'm asking you to do, I've already given you what you need to do it. Like I've already funded it out of my account. What I possess and what I desire of you, I will give you the resources you need to do the things I ask you to do. Many times it feels almost like God has called us and sent us out into the world with impossible tasks. And there's this weird thing in Christianity, sometimes it's like, well, he goes out there and sends you out in the world to do things you can't do so that you fail, and then you, you, know, you go back to him. And it's like, no, no. he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit so that you can have everything you need to live the life I've asked you to do. God never asks you to do anything that he doesn't give you the power to do. All things are possible through who? Through Christ. Like Paul wasn't joking. That wasn't like just a saying that you get to put on a on a picture or put it on your dashboard. And ho- it's like, no, no, this is true. Paul's saying, "I'm I'm living this." So, what does this look like this morning? We're just gonna walk through these three things because I I think the temptation in this passage is to talk about timidity and talk about fear. Our world is infected with fear and anxiety. But really, this verse, uh, that word of fear, there is more talking about like like a better translation than fear. Timidity is good, but it actually. actually. like the root word is cowardice. Paul's like, if you're not careful, you're going to walk into the battlefield and you're going to run away from fear. (laughs) Because the things you're facing are real and they're scary. They're difficult, but, but don't be afraid. Right. The whole I mean, one of the core messages of the entire Bible is do not be afraid. For I'm with you. Be strong and of good courage, right? It tells Joshua, it's like go into this land because I'm going to give it to you. Your job is to go, my job is to give. But If you go on the land and you see those giants and you don't remember my promise, you're going to quake in fear and you're going, to, you're going to run away. You're going to tuck your tail and you're going to take off. But Paul's saying, listen, God didn't give you that kind of spirit. God gave you a spirit, right? And what is he talking about? That, that spirit in the text is a, is a small S, but he's still talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit of God who lives in you now. God gave you the spirit of God. And because you have the spirit of God living in you now, you don't have to walk and live and surrender to fear, timidity, anxiety, cowardice. No, no, he's giving you the Holy Spirit to live in you. And because of that, you have access to power, love, self-discipline. So so what does this look like? I just want to jump in and and kind of move through this. Uh, Power. What's the first thing? The Greek word there is dynamo, which is awesome because it's like that's where we get our word dynamite. God's like, I have put inside of you a power like dynamite that if I light the match, guess what? Things are going to change. Things are going to happen. You have power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that gave sight to the blind, the power that healed the sick, all these things, this But and this is how many times this word is used in the New Testament. I know you can't read it. It's 120 times this word is used to describe the life of Jesus and thus the life of believers who live through Jesus. If your Christianity doesn't include the concept of power, you will not get the life that Jesus promised. Power is what he promised. He says, stay in Jerusalem until you receive what? Power until you're clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit comes on you and lives in you, and then you'll be able to do the things that I ask you to do. That's why he can take 12 young men who are fishermen and zealots and tax collectors and Pharisees and put them together and send them out into the world. And literally, we're sitting in a room today because of those 12 apostles. Like, we're threaded directly in their lineage. And they were normal people like you. They had normal jobs, normal families, normal stories. Um, they had no human power, no human capital, no, nothing other than a direct face-to-face relationship with Jesus. That's what they possessed. But I love this, it, it, it's just all through. Luke 4, same word, Jesus returned with power from the Holy Spirit. They were all amazed, for with power and authority he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. Luke 5, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to, and, and to cure diseases. Behold, he says, I'm sending the promise of my Father, but stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. The same power that is in me will be in you." And he actually says, greater things will you do than I did when I walked the earth. What a promise. But this power thing isn't a joke. He said, I've given you this spirit of power. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. He says, I have the power to produce hope in you where there is no hope. It's hopeless by every human means and yet inside of you can possess hope because the Holy Spirit lives in you. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2, my speech and my message weren't implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, Paul says, this is the gospel. This is the basis of the church, is a group of people who operate in the power of God, not people who are good at obeying or following the rules, not people whose lives look really good and clean and they do everything perfect. He said, no, 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 the demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God is the mark of the church. That's what's happening. By truthful speech and the power of God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Ephesians, it's threaded through the whole thing. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Which was given me by the working of his power. That you may be strengthened with power according to the power that's at work with us. Paul goes on in Philippians. That I might know the power of God. The resurrection I don't want to just hear about it. I want to know it. I want to see it. I want to participate in the power of God. Paul says that this energy, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me, you are made to live in the power of God, to live through the power of God, to see God's power poured out through you. God doesn't give you a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear. He's given you a spirit of power. He's given us love, this agape reality that, that he's like, hey, in this thing, I want you to operate in power, but your power isn't to be exerted over people the way the Gentiles do. That you walk through a city and because you can perform, because God can perform signs and wonders that puts you over people. It's like, no, no, my powers poured out so people would know my love. <laughs> power is to display and open people's hearts for the love of God. And we see this love, this agape, self-filling love. It's like, it goes upward and it goes inward and it goes outward. And actually, I, I was thinking this morning, I, I, I missed one. Really, it comes downward. And then it goes back upward and then it comes inward and then it goes outward. What do I mean by that? John three sixteen. for the father so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent him from heaven to earth. Love came down. It comes to us for he loved us first. We love him because he first loved us. And then what happens? Because he loved us, we love him. Matthew 23, Jesus gets asked, what's the greatest commandment? says the first and greatest commandment is this love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength this is the first and greatest commandment period and and friends I just I just want to say there's there we too quickly move from that to love your neighbor as yourself and we think well, well the real point is to love love the neighbor and God says no the real point of life is to love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your entire being should be focused on loving me. And if you do that, you know what will happen? You will get so emptied of yourself and of pride and of ego and all the other stuff that you won't be able to help but to love the people around you. Because you will have lost yourself in love. And then what happens is you start to become loving. You don't run around the world trying to love your neighbor. We've talked about this. You ever tried to love your neighbor? It's really hard. Trying to love people is not what the gospel is. He says, no, 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 surrender to love that came down and return that love back up. And then what will happen is you'll find love growing inside and then you'll find love pushing out. So love goes up and down and love comes in and goes out. It's this beautiful, mysterious, wonderful thing where we don't do a whole lot whole point of the gospel is it's not that you do a bunch of stuff it's that God's doing all these things and we get to stand and wonder and watch and then participate to be yoked to love but it goes downward and upward and inward and outward and so if you know that the father loves you that he loves you the father himself he loves you And friends, if you just spend a good chunk of your time meditating on that, it will break you in the best kinds of ways to just know that you are fully loved, fully known. The one person in the universe, the only person that knows every thought, every action, every motive. He knows everything about you and yet his disposition towards you is unconditional love that never stops, never quits. That will change your life. It'll crush you. And it ne- you need to be crushed because if not, you'll think your life is about performing and earning and exerting all that stuff into the world so that you receive love from people. And you'll need it. You'll need love and you'll need affirmation. And you'll need all this stuff from people. And what you'll start to do is you'll start to manipulate And you'll start to force things on people and you'll start to place yourself above and around all this stuff instead of just saying like, God loves me. Jesus shows up and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus spent 30 years as a shaper of rocks in obscurity in a backwater land and he shows up and gets baptized and God says, oh, I love my son. And if God would have taken him back to heaven at that moment, he would have been like, you did everything I asked you to. I love you. Thank you. Good and faithful servant. Right? So that love comes down. but then our our next thing is is we go back to love him. That's why this church spends so much time with with worship and prayers. Because we don't think you can spend too much time in vertical relationship with God. We just don't think that that it's possible to spend too much of your time loving him, gazing at him, listening to him, offering to him, sacrifices of praise, worship, thanksgiving. And then what happens is you begin to build an identity of one who is the beloved of God. And if that gets into the center of your being, it will change everything about your life. If you can walk through the world going, I am the beloved one of God. I love Song of Songs. I am my beloved's and he is mine. We belong to each other and there's no one who could separate me from his love. And so I can go to work in the morning and I can serve and love people because I'm not earning anything. You pay me a paycheck, but it doesn't do anything for me. The God of the universe loves me. He's desperately in love with me. You can be in your marriage and with your children knowing like, oh, all this is just grace. It's just extra. I have everything I need in him. And so everything good that comes, just like, oh, blessing and abundance. Thank you, Jesus. Not like desperately clawing and grasping at all the things because the, the center of us is not right. And then, like I said, it just goes outward from there. What does this look like in the Bible, right? The, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. Paul says this, what does he want you to know? He wants you to know how high how wide, how long, how deep is the love of Christ? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I love that. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? It's not in a way that you can speak of. It's in a way that you feel, or as our friends Lance Humphreys would say, you know in your knower. I don't know what your knower is, but everyone has one. When you just know something... And it's just so deep and it's so true and it's so real. And you're like, I don't even know what that part of me is called. Is it the soul, the spirit, the heart? What is it in my gut? I don't know. But all I know is I know. I know. And it's, it's more than I could write down. It's more than I could explain. It's more than I could prove. And the point isn't to prove it. The point is to embrace it, receive it, <laughs> live in it. And then First Corinthians talks about this love, right? What kind of love moves out of the people who receive those other things? And it's this love that doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't keep record of wrongs, it never fails. It just keeps on hoping, believing, loving people. Paul says this is the kind of life you need if you want to live faithfully in these days. You need power, which is supernatural, and you need love, which is supernatural. You need two things that you cannot produce on your own. If you go out in the world and you're like, you can get a lot of power in the world, you can get a lot of money, you can get a lot of claim, you can do all this stuff, have all this success, but you will never possess the power that the Holy Spirit has for you. You can't acquire it. In the book of Acts, remember the guy who tries to buy it? It's the magician who does all these crazy things, and he says, let me pay you for the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, you can't buy this, man. A free gift, and the only way you get it is is surrender. Is just giving yourself over to it. So that kind of power, that kind of love, and then this last one is really fascinating because it's translated in our Bible self discipline or self control. Which this is not me being an expert. Okay, I read this in a commentary. So you know, and that's can I just let you in a little pastoral secret? We're all reading. Commentaries and other people's writings. There's no brilliant, amazing person at the source of all this. It's history of wisdom in the church. Um, but this word self-discipline in the Greek doesn't mean self-discipline. Isn't that weird? We're translating from ancient languages and we're trying to capture. It has a hint of that in it, but this word is actually sophronis, sophronismos. Chase wouldn't know how to pronounce this. He's in seminary. He's smart. I went to Bible college. It's like a tier below. <laughs> seminary <laughs> sophronismos but the, the root word soph is the Greek word for wisdom so, so this thing he says I want to give you power, love and I think a wisdom of how to be in the world faithfully where you're at and guess what? The wisdom of this day is, is going to be different than the wisdom of 100 years ago. It's going to be different. Now, there's going to be the core things, but there's going to be a contextualization which says where is the church and the Christian today under pressure? And how do we respond today with wisdom to know how to live? I love this idea. Ephesians, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Notice what Paul says, and I heard this from Greg Dewey, so I'm going to attribute this. When Chase turned 16, we had a bunch of guys kind of write letters and, and, and speak them over Chase, and I remember Greg very clearly said, Bud, you're becoming a man now, and your life is no matter about, is it right or wrong? You should be asking the question, is it wise? Is it wise or is it unwise? Because this isn't about sin and, and, and or, or you know goodness. This isn't about whether you're going to heaven or hell. It's about what kind of life will you live if you choose to live unwisely. Who are you becoming in the way you're living in the world and the things you're choosing? Man, that's so much different than be a good boy, try not to make a mistake. Right? Try not to transgress the law. It's like, no, 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 there's another level. You know there's levels to these things? Wisdom is like this thing. It's like, man, I want to learn how to live well in the days that I'm in. Wisdom. Sophronismos. I got it now. This is, I think, one of the places where the church and Christians are under immense pressure today. How do we live today as wise, not unwise? Not as what is what we're doing sinful, not as what we're doing going to cast us, you know, uh, into Hades, but is the life we're living are the choices we're making with our time and our talent and our treasure, are they wise and are they producing or capable of producing the kind of life that God desires for us? And I think if you looked at all the statistics that are being put out there about American life, the answer would be a profound and resounding no. Like all the stats say we're the most anxious, the most medicated, the most unhealthy physically, the most broken Generation that our nation has ever seen and maybe the world has ever seen. That, that's the life we're living in right now. The number one cause of death now is deaths of despair. We live in the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen and people are dying of drug overdose and suicide at rates we've never seen before. How's that happening other than an entire generation has lost the wisdom of God? And guys, it's not out there. It's not that the world has lost the wisdom of God. First the church, then the world. The church loses the wisdom of God first. And what happens is the church, friends, the people of God are the ones who stand in the breach in the culture and hold off the judgment of God. And when the people of God compromise, that breach goes. And what you get is an, on, on entire people, you get judgment on sin and on wickedness. And we're living in it. And I just want you to know I'm not like a fire and brimstone preacher, I'm not like a wrath of God guy, but I am a Bible guy. And Abraham goes in front of God and he says, would you save this city for just a hundred people? And God's like, yeah. Would you save it for 10? Would you say? And it's like, and it's one. God's like, I'm trying to save these people. And what happens? He can't even find one because Lot, his own brother-in-law, isn't righteous in a city of run people. He couldn't find one. I think this is one of the most important things that that our generation will either get right or will get wrong and will determine whether or not we see a great move of God in our generation. I think we're on the cusp of one of the greatest revivals the world has ever seen. That would literally shake the nations. But I think God's waiting on the church. To say, like, do you want to give yourself to the kind of things where I can use a people to turn things upside down the way the apostles did? This quote, I think, is really interesting as it relates to how we are in the world and our wisdom or lack thereof. It says, it's morphed in the minds of many Americans, this idea of the happy life into a promise of sustained pleasure, sure and painlessness, More than a few conceive the concept in sensualistic, materialistic, egotistical terms, food and sex, wealth and possessions, achievement and power are the goals that goad so many of us into action. We are in search of the everlasting ideal in education, finances, work, technology, marriage, parenting, friendship, travel, adventure, health, entertainment, recreation, religion, food, drink, sex, and self. Not only is this pursuit exhausting, the sentence itself, guys, that was exhausting. Just reading that. But we are a generation in search of an everlasting ideal. Why do you think Instagram exists? It exists to to put forth in front of people what could be the ideal life. What could be a life full of happiness and goodness and joy. And people will say, this is my highlight reel. And so what do we do? We live in the face of people's highlight reels. And we compare our highlight reel to their highlight reel. And we wonder... Where do we measure? How are we doing? It trivializes a once noble concept as we have moved from a concern with being and doing good to a fixation on feeling good. Wisdom is knowing how to be and do good rather than searching how to feel good. Because feeling good is momentary. It's fleeting. There's a lot of things in this life that are good that do not feel good. Any parents say, amen, I'm trying, right? I'm trying for myself and I'm trying for my kids, trying to teach them how things that feel good always aren't that good. I've got just a bunch of quotes I want to just kind of like... I, I, I'm going to do like a shiatsu massage for your soul real quick. So can I just read these over you? It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. <laughs> but it's that thing of like, I'm like, do that to you to like create some space. Christianity as a religion advocates a kind of holy materialism that neither venerates nor repudiates God's creation, but recognizes its important role when it's loved and enjoyed appropriately. We live in a generation who doesn't know how to love and enjoy appropriately the good things that God's given us. We are getting things out of order in how we relate to the world, which has created chaos. Order and chaos are two themes of the Bible. And when you get things out of order, what you get is you get chaos. And our enemy loves chaos. Alexander Shimon says this, it is this world and not any other world. It's this life and not any other life that were given to man to be a sacrament of the divine presence, given as communion with God. And it's only through this world, this life, by transforming them into communion with God that man was meant to be. Our goal in the world is to transform the things of this life into communion with God. That's the point of all of this. It's that your work has an opportunity to be transformed into communion with God, that your marriage has the opportunity to be transformed into communion with God, that your parenting has an opportunity to be transformed into communion with God, that your finances actually have the chance for you to join with God in the renewal of all things and to make good things in the world, to bless people and serve people. Your talent your intellect, the skill you acquired, your, your, uh, your education are all opportunities to be trans- transformed into communion with God. All that exists is God's gift to man, and it all exists to make God known to man, to make uh, man's life communion with God. It's divine love that made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates, and in biblical language, this means he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation, taste and see that the world is good. But to taste and see, you actually need wisdom. You need wisdom, and friends, you need the word of God has to become the lens through which we see all things, and we interpret the world through that lens, because we know that things aren't the way they should be. All that sounds really beautiful, but what's true is this. I love Peter Kraft. He has a way of just distilling stuff down. He says, what happened in Eden may be hard to understand, but it makes everything else understandable. When human beings sinned in the garden, I don't know exactly what happened, but I know everything that's happened since then makes sense with the fall of man. Every evil and ugly thing is understandable through the lens of the fall of human beings in the garden when we chose to be wiser than God. (laughs) When we chose to grasp, to be God rather than to serve God, everything got sent into chaos. And everything got sent into pain. And everything got sent into this, like, confusion. Or maybe like Bob Dylan, right? Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, amen? Broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. How do you live wisely in a world where it feels like everything is broken. Friends, if you look at the stats of the number of children growing up without parents in our country or in single-parent homes compared to 50, 60 years ago, the amount of brokenness in families, how do you live wisely in the midst of that? If that's your story in here today, how do you recover from it? in a way that allows God into your story and allows him to heal you and restore you and say, God, I've gotten brokenness and yet I know that you love me. And I know that you have good for me. I know that you're with me. My story's not over. The broken parts of my life, my story's not over. And in fact, many times it's just beginning. It's in the broken moments where God's like, I'm actually I'm actually beginning something. Another author says, no longer do we seek to love God in all things and to love all things in God in a sacramental life of genuine happiness. Instead, now we live non-sacred lives in a non-sacred world in which we fail to see God in his own creation. That was a challenging word for me. It is so easy for me, I'm a pastor, it's so easy for me to walk out these doors and live a non-sacred life in a non-sacred world. Because the world feels like it's just full of meetings and sports and driving and eating and drinking and vacation and hobbies. And I wonder, where's God in all this? You're like, I'm living Ecclesiastes. Like this thing feels meaningless. Meaningless. God, what are you doing here? Got a couple quotes to tie a bow on it. You always got to get C.S. Lewis in there. You can't get second things by putting them first. Let's see if I have that in there. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Isn't that crazy? You can only truly get the second things if they're in the right order. If you put second things first, you won't actually get those things. From which would follow the question... What things are first? Here is wisdom, friends, this morning. Is in your life, can you answer what things are first? Second thing is, after you answer that question, can you prove with your life that the first things are first in your life? Because it's one thing to answer rightly, it's another thing for you to open your calendar and your checkbook. If I could open your mind, and see, what do you daydream about? Our first things first in your life. This, this part for me, we've got six kids. We're in the middle of, of the muck and mire of parenting. Anybody else? Can I get an amen? Somebody? Somebody stand up. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord my deepest fear in life is that I will raise my kids and not get first things first. That our life will be about sports and travel and friends and all these things. And I will speak with my mouth that God is first, but we will live with our life that God's second, third, fourth, fifth. And I've felt conviction this morning. So I don't want to do public therapy, but I will make a public confession. Our family didn't eat a single dinner around the table this week. That didn't happen a single time in my childhood. Not one time. I bet you there weren't five times that we missed more than one family dinner around the table. Last night, I'm tucking my little boy in the, in the bed. We're talking about football. Football season's been hard. It's just been like he's struggling with discouragement. And I just said, bud, well, what's, what's most important in our life? He said, God, family. And I was like, oh, he's got it right. But this morning, I just want to, I just want to like, I, will he be able to look back at our life and say, that's how we lived our life, not just what we said with our lips? And friends, I feel like a massive pressure for families today to trade family dinner for sports. You know we didn't have family dinner? Sports. Kids' activities. Oh, man. I love sports. I love watching our kids play sports. I don't love driving to sports. <laughs> I, I don't love that part. there is a massive pressure on us to compromise and we don't even know what the win is beyond the cuteness factor or the joy or maybe reliving some old memories but you will spend 95% of your time with your children 0 to 18 and you'll never get it back so every hour you give to another thing is an hour you're letting go of and today I'm really convicted about what would happen in our life if we said we're making a commitment we will never miss family dinner. What would our life look like? It would look like a lot less activities, but what would the hearts of our children look like as they leave our house someday? You have inputs in your life and you have outputs. And most of our mistakes are thinking the inputs we put in will create outputs that they never can. Technology, sports, business. You can always make more money. You will never get a single second of your kid's childhood back. You cannot recreate it. The time with your spouse, taking walks in the neighborhood in the evening or in the morning. You can always return emails. You can always stay up later. You can always wake up earlier. But you cannot recreate those things. Are we living wisely or do we think we'll actually win the world through compromise? Compromise. I challenge you to find that in the Bible where we might win the world through compromise. The Bible says we win by being holy as he is holy, being set apart. Last quote and then we'll close. Each thing we love is different because of the way God made it. According to Augustine, there's a scale of value stretching from earthly to heavenly realities, from the visible to the invisible, and the inequality between these goods makes possible the existence of of them all. God is one thing, angels are another, as are people, terriers, red oaks, squash, rocks, and dirt. Each item fits in God's overall scheme of creation. The nature of things and the hierarchy is unchangeable, and so is the kind of satisfaction it can provide when we are are related to it through love we are a generation who are giving our love to things that can't return it in kind and so we're anxious and we're afraid and we're unhappy because there's there's just certain things that you can't get by giving it to this thing but if you gave it to that thing you'd have so much of it you you you'd feel like your heart was gonna explode Because of the actual differences in things, the outcome of loving each actual thing will be different. There's a divinely designed fit between our needs, the character of the things that can satisfy them, and the way we should love them in order to be satisfied. Even though uh, each thing God made is good, delightful, legitimate, and a source of satisfaction as an object of our love, we must not expect more from it than its unique nature can provide. We must give... uh, I I think I might be... uh, Yes, sorry. I kept going. Um, Even though each thing God has made is good, delightful, legitimate, source of satisfaction as an object of our love, we must not expect more from it than each uh, its unique nature can provide. We must give love and praise to things apportioned to their worth. Listen to this. Problems don't arise because we need things or because we love things or because of the things themselves that we love and need. Problems arise when we fail to grasp the nature of the objects that we need and love, the manner in which we love them, and the expectations we have regarding the outcome of our love. Many of us fail to grasp the unique character uh, it should hold and the purpose it should fill in our lives. So the question is, in my life, am I giving the appropriate amount of love, time, energy to the things that can actually return to me in the way that I desire them? And that could be my education, my school, that could be my work, that could be my marriage, that could be my children. It's anything that we're putting our lives to. Can it return? And can I just tell you, um, part of the reason I made that confession is because I'm in the middle of it. So I'm not on a high seat giving judgment or condemnation. I'm saying, like, I feel like I'm saying to the Lord, help. Help me. (laughs) Because what would happen if Christians could get this right in our generation? And people could see families who weren't harried and over busy and stressed, and children who are full of delight and love and confidence and self-worth. And the sinister thing is for all that stuff in sports, less than 2% of high school athletes play college. Less than 2% of that 2% are going to play pro, which means for all of us in here, most of our kids are not going to play college sports and I played college sports, and I played at a tiny little Bible college, and it was like this thing where, like, it doesn't matter, nobody cares, but every single kid on our team started for Owasso, Moore, Jinx, Westmore. It's like, if you couldn't start at a 6A high school, you couldn't even play for our Bible college. Like, And I finished at 21, and guess what? I spent most of my 20s unlearning the things that sports taught me. So the second thing I guess, wow, sports teach you character, blah, blah blah. I'm like, have you been to a youth sporting event lately? Lately? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever had any curse words, near fights? I had a parent tell me somebody pulled a gun out at a gym. The coach called the 17 year old girl who was running the score called her the b word in the middle of the game. A grown man looking at a girl messed up on the scoreboard and called her a name. And you're going to tell me our kids are a learning character? From these things? And your bet is that they'll learn better character from that coach with two hours than they'd learn from you at home? Man, I use sports as an outlet for anger, jealousy, competition, performance. And it's taken a long time to work that stuff out of my life as a leader. And some of you in here have been damaged by that in me. And I just wanna say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm just like a work in progress. That's stuff that God's like, you gotta get that out of you. I'm like, where did that come from? It's like, I use sports as an outlet for my brokenness. In the same way that you can use it in your sexuality, you can use it in your work, you can use it in all sorts of things. Or you can let God heal you on the inside and be like, God, would you put first things first in my life? So I want you to stand to your feet. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to close our eyes and just take a second. And with your eyes closed just for a second, can I just… Just ask the Holy Spirit real quick. Holy Spirit, would you right now wipe away any notion of condemnation from every heart in this room? Because Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to rescue us. And so would you just eliminate any spirit of condemnation, any spirit of fear... Uh, any spirit of regret or shame, God, that we might have as an individual, as a husband or a wife, as a mother or a father, as a son or daughter, would you just come and, and relax our spirits for a second? And I just want to remind us it's out of our belovedness, that love, that He calls us in to a life of wisdom, a life of discernment, a life of spending our time and our talent and our treasure. And so this morning, I don't feel condemned um, by the conviction that God brought in my heart. I don't feel afraid. I don't feel embarrassed but friends this morning I felt like I was on my heels and I don't want to live on my heels I don't want to live off balance in regards to my life I want to live forward I want to live confidently I want to live with a surety that I'm spending my life in the ways that God has asked me to according to his word, according to the historic wisdom of the church, according to what was given to me as a child. But here's a picture just, God just gave in my mind, the Holy Spirit that we, it's like if we're not careful, we just jump in the stream of the culture we live in and not realize that stream is carrying us somewhere. Jump in, we're giving up control of where that thing takes us. So, where's the stream of your life taking you right now? Of your family, your children, your marriage your roommates, the person you're dating right now, your work. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to swim to the shore and just sit there long enough to hear God's voice. actually give him a say in your life. Holy Spirit, what do you have to say this morning about our lives? choices to be made for us by the culture. We don't want to be pressured by the world or by the choices of other people, other parents, other friends. We want to live under your direction. We know that you love us, and we love you, and your love has taken up residence in our hearts so that we don't have to earn your love. We know your love wants to flow out of us know also that you want to give us power, God, for whatever today that we need to to, um, adjust in our lives or we need to change or we need to redirect or we need to repent of, you have the power for us to change, for us to transform. So we just want to say today, we want to live by your power, God, not by our power, not by our wisdom, not by our might, by our our financial capabilities or education, God, we want to live through your power spirit speak right now to every person if you just ask him i believe he'll he'll speak to you is there any way in my life where i'm living according to the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of god are there things that were okay in one part of my life that are no longer okay not because they're sinful but because i might miss the move of your spirit shepherd we love your staff your rod which isn't meant to harm us but it's meant to direct us so would you gently nudge us this morning into new things into better paths the paths of righteousness God that's what we want we don't want to cut our own paths we want the paths of righteousness eyes closed, I just want to encourage you, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning, respond, write it down, if you're here with your spouse, pray over it, speak it out loud, come to the altar, if you're like, I don't know, I just feel something, our prayer team will be down front, if you need prayer for wisdom, for revelation, for guidance, um, we don't have advice for you, but we have access to the Holy Spirit, who knows all things, who searches the mind of God. If you need that, we can access his power this morning through prayer. Yes. Yes, Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to move, to speak, to work. Jesus, we love you. Yeah, we love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, there'll be prayer team down front. Altars are open if you want to respond.